1: Diego, I can't think of a better person um, to pick their brains on about bubbles than you. So welcome back. Thank you so much, as always. Um, look, I'm trying to get my head around all of this. What, g- give me what, what you think is going on right now. Um, you know, you and I last spoke, and the world was a different place, or the asset markets are a different place. the world's roughly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know And you've got a deep understanding of these bubbles what do you think is going on what's your framework here well i would
2: look back into past decade and i think the i like to summarize it in, in one line which is the the transformation of uh, risk free interest into interest free risk and, and you think about what happened ever since 2008 and you know where once upon a time we had whether it's the, the bond or treasury is paying 5 6% and there was this great concept called risk-free interest. You know, you, you, we had it in the textbooks, and that meant that you could effectively put your money without any risk, um, uh, earn your five-six percent, which was in nominal terms. Inflation was low, so you were earning some very nice uh, real yields. And uh, in balance, when you think about how you valued assets, you were discounting things at five percent plus credit spread. What we've seen in this transition rates to zero uh, negative, what it means is the present value of, well, first of all, of course, there's nowhere to park your money. So <laughs> risk-free is is, is gone. Uh, and that has effectively forced us, savers and investors, to, to take more risk. Uh, the first dimension, uh, and most obvious, is duration. So you start out with your bond. You have to go 10 years. 20 years and now even 30 years are deeply negative, which is just uh, an aberration. Uh, Of course, when treasuries, when you need to go so long, then you're starting to take some credit risk. Look at the Spanish government bond, you know, and it's not just obviously the the appetite for for yield, it's also the perception of low risk and and the totally artificial setup with monetary uh, policies without limits. And, and the combination of these two things lead to this bubble in duration, lead to the bubble in in, in credit, where we're all looking, you know, lending for longer and lower, uh, longer for lower and lower yields, and uh, and for and, and basically this translates directly, obviously, into equity markets. Uh, if we, you know, if you think about any asset that you can value, discounting cash flows, well, uh, you know, the PV of a hundred dollars. Uh, you know, 50 years out, if interest rates are at 5%, it's only eight cents. Today, with interest rates at at, at zero, it's 100. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's in euro, right? But certainly, what's happened is we have this process that starts with with this monetary uh, transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. And this creates a domino effect that pushes into duration, it pushes into credit, it pushes into equities, it pushes us into the liquidity premium, you know, private equity, private debt. And, and effectively, this takes us to a point, which I think it's it, we've passed now, we are now in a new paradigm. We're in a new paradigm when the rules of the game are changing, and by now, the bubbles are basically um, too big to fail. Uh, if, if you think about what all these... Um, uh, measures, or these things that we've done through monetary and fiscal policies without limits, uh, they were done in response to some sort of crisis. But we haven't really solved anything. We've done four things, in my view. The first one is we've just kicked the can down the road. We've delayed the problems, primarily through money printing and debt. The second thing uh, that we've done is we've Transferred the problem. So this is basically currency wars and trade wars. You remember in two thousand and eight, the you know the U.S. is is very uh, aggressive with QE. Europe is more orthodox, and we see euro dollar going to one fifty. And it's not just you, the euro losing competitiveness versus the U.S. It was also versus China, where you had a dollar uh, and yuan peg. So, four years later, Europe, having lost enormous competitiveness, clearly has to defend itself. We have the two thousand and twelve crisis, and when Mario Draghi walks in, decides to defend the euro and amongst other things, introduce negative interest rates and And, and I always say that we would have never, ever, ever seen negative interest rates had the Fed been at two percent. The only reason we went negative is because the Fed was at zero and is this battle effectively to try to transfer the problem and defend yourself, which is uh, feeding on itself. And and the new phase will be uh, trade wars. Because at the end of the day, uh, if you decided to devalue by 20% and gain a competitive edge, whether you're China or whoever, and say, look, I want your employment, your investment, your technology uh, at the expense of potentially some inflation and, and, and bubbles. But, but once I try to defend myself from this process, um, I need to say, look, don't devalue. Don't devalue. But if you do, I will tariff you. you know, if you want to devalue by 20%, I will tariff you by 20%. And that immediately neutralizes the impact of currency wars, and basically leaves the offender with the burden, because they lose the advantages, and they, stick, they, they remain with the problem. And this is, I think, a new phase to watch, which effectively looks into transferring the problem. The third thing that's happened is we're transforming the problem. And I think this is what's become more obvious now it's the transformation of bubbles into inflation and inequality. Okay. And that's, and that's really, I think, the, the big uh, acceleration of this process was when the, the Fed openly talked about removing the 2% ceiling in inflation. It was, look, guys. The rules of the game have changed. I've been arguing with you, actually, uh, or or defending for a long time that we would see zero interest rates and inflation. And this is a change in the rules of the game, because if you think about it, most people would argue, well, the the textbook says that if inflation comes in, we must hike interest rates. The problem is the bubbles are by now so huge that you cannot hike interest rates. And therefore, the degree of freedom in the system is going to be inflation, currency devaluation, and inequality. And the process that we're undertaking effectively when you put together these three factors, kicking the can through debt, transferring the problem through contagious currency and trade wars, and basically um, uh, the transformation for inflation inequality, all in, has not resolved the problem, it's made them way bigger. And, and we are now in this process where things are accelerating, and I think we are. Uh, it, it is. It is, in my view, taking, you know, very, very dangerous levels, and it's. It's. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, for those like you who who I, I, I had the the chance to give a dedicated dedicated copy of my my book, I always signed it. I hope you like it. I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> and I, and I mean it because. I feel a bit like a doctor, you know, who who is telling a friend that, that it has a very serious disease. Uh, as a friend, I want to be wrong. As a doctor, you want to be correct in your assessment. I want to be wrong. I mean, I, I am looking at what's happening, and this is this is not good. So I think we're really trapped in this scenario. Things are accelerating, and uh, and it's it's. Uh, I think there's multiple warnings in the system that are telling us. This is accelerating and and potentially getting a little bit out of control.
1: So let's talk about that acceleration. You've set up a scenario where it's impossible for them to do anything different because it risks the whole system. So, therefore, the outcome must be more of the same in whatever format. Um, Now, I'm not sure that we're going to see competitive currency devals. I think we're seeing Everybody kind of printing at the same time, correct? It, it creates similar kind of outcomes. So, if that's the case, why don't we just buy the bubble? Well, I guess the, you know what uh, I mean. I'm, I'm getting my question. head around this. I'm like, because I was, you saw, you might have seen on Twitter today. I was, I was looking at charts changing the denominator, and when you sure. change the denominator to the Fed balance sheet or the G four central bank balance sheets, things don't look that crazy because of the reasons that you talked about. Um, I don't know. I mean what the problem about- is i think so
2: effectively we're 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 caught in the following process if if you think about q four two thousand and eighteen and it was like a mini earthquake you know and, and and I think that was the wake up the point where I don't know what Jerome powell was thinking when when he said the famous we're an autopilot right, but I am surprised that he caught them by surprise. I'm shocked in a way that you could be so naive. That you can increase the debt and do all this ballooning, and then pretend that you can just hike interest rates and bring things to five percent as if nothing happened. So I always say, look, I can afford a trillion dollar mortgage at zero percent. Okay, at zero point one, at zero point one I cannot. Okay, but at zero percent, all of us can afford it, and that's kind of the point. You can take as much debt as you want, but then you can't really hike uh, rates. What we saw then it was basically the realization. Of the problem, and to some extent, what we've seen is a very preemptive Federal Reserve ever since. And you're in a situation where you just can't afford, you know, the bubble pricking. And this is a dynamic that you describe. I think it's missing one 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 point, which is uh, the anti-bubble angle. And and let's talk about one of them, which is volatility. Okay, I think it's the single most important anti-bubble in the system. And and I think most of the, the the audience are familiar with the idea, but just very briefly to, to refresh the concept. I we can define bubbles as assets that are borrowing soros and definition, bubbles that are, are assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false. It happens to be a misconception. So the emperor has no clothes. What I did with the concept of anti-bubble is effectively to generalize the framework and say, well. Misconceptions distort reality, but not only through artificially high valuations, they can also do it through artificially low valuations. And so the anti-bubble in itself is, is like a distorted mirror image of the bubble. And it's, it's, it's beautiful because it's not only offering value, extreme value, it's also perfect hedge against the bubble because it's the same process. So in terms of catalyst and timing, so if you think about volatility, I would argue that there's a bubble anti bubble relationship between the VIX and the SP, where there are effectively valuations can be artificially high, partially through uh, artificial low volatility, which comes from two angles both qualitative, the perception that mommy and daddy, central bank put, if there's no risk and even if there is, we'll, we'll buy it and they'll buy it again and they'll come and save us, as well as quantitative. And this is CTAs in autocorrelated processes where they, they, they're basically the longest at the top with the lowest fall, right? And this is the danger, right? You could argue, why don't we just buy the bubble and you know, even if things happen, mommy and daddy will have to come and rescue us. The problem is you will have these shocks. I mean, I think March was obviously COVID-driven and, and unprecedented but and unexpected. But the damage was already done. It was a case of pre existing fragility. And I think what's happening now is you continue to compound these moves. And so you need to balance two things. You need to balance, you know, the the this right in the bubble versus the extreme you know volatile moves and and that you're gonna have. And this comes mechanically. So let me explain this. If you think about volatility, I I, I often refer to volatility as the speedometer of the markets. and and and, and the idea is Let's say you're driving at 200 miles an hour, but the speedometer says 80. If you ever have an accident, boom, what do you feel? Of course, you're going to feel whatever speed you, you were running, regardless of what the speedometer was saying. What does the speedometer say for Tesla? It doesn't tell you that you have a lot of risk. If you look at the price action, it's actually fairly stable, that thing. <laughs> Uh, so the idea that you could lose 50% in a day might look ludicrous to some people, but it's something that we can't really tell ex ante. We might know exposed, and it could be for any trigger. But ultimately, what happens with volatility is I use the analogy of fluid mechanics. Okay? Nature in itself and fluid mechanics has two regimes, a laminar regime and a turbulent regime. And in the laminar regime, the world is linear, is predictable. Right? But once you go into turbulent regime, the, the, the nature is chaotic. And I think that point is the VIX at 40. VIX below 40, Agreed. the markets are linear. You basically operate in a scenario that it's somewhat well behaved. Once, and, and the line could be 35, it could be 40, but let's say 40. Now the minute 40 is broken, you start to have a mechanical process. That is effectively feeding on itself. Because I think most people are familiar with the concept of value at risk. Okay? This is just um, a way in which banks and strategies are measure the risk ex ante. Right? You think about what is the probability that, or that I will lose more than x uh, within, within certain certainty in a certain period of time, and basically it gives you a sense of how much you're risking. Right? What happens when volatility explodes? Of course, your value at risk uh, explodes, right? your potential loss increases. And what happens is your boss, or your regulator, or the market, if you're a day trader, will basically ask you to trade smaller, you need to cut. And as you cut the position, and everybody has the same position, it feeds on itself through some
1: liquidity, and then correlation. And this is when things go completely Yeah, we almost saw this with Robin Hood. Right, they all got tapped on the shoulder, and we almost started a massive unwind. I got very nervous of the unwind. It didn't happen, but it came close. The VIX didn't break forty, and everything calmed down again. And it's, and it's.
2: I think it's a matter of time. To be honest, Um, it's something that the more complacent the market is, the more one-sided it is. I mean, it's almost. I think Robin Hood is interesting. I mean, you've seen. Probably like these uh, these Goldman Sachs indices, you know the most shorted companies, and the here yeah, it's almost like a bear hunt. I mean, good luck being long the VIX with the carry. Good luck being short anything, right? In in this scenario, it's it's really one a bit of a one sided coal buying. So my my concern to your question of why don't we just buy everything is fair enough. And and I think there is a rationale to that, which I'll I'll get into, but it's going to be the problem is so huge and it's so obvious which way we're going that the drawdown and the the shocks are going to be brutal. And the bigger the problem, the bigger the shock and basically forces mommy and daddy to come in. Now, what I think the way this ends, and I can see it, I I think it's a very high conviction. It was science fiction not long ago, <laughs> um, it's, it's inflation. right? And, and that's really, uh, I think, that, that catalyst. And so when you think about why don't we just buy everything, in fact, the, the system's telling you, look, the 100 euros, if you buy, if you're in cash or you're in credit or you're in fixed income, the 100 euros that your 10, 20, 30-year bond are going to give you are going to buy you nothing. <laughs> okay, So you're simply stupid holding that money it into equity something real assets something that will will get you out. and the flip side is you could even buy equities levered because you know or a house you buy a house and you, then your mortgage shrinks and inflation comes in. So the question is the system's telling you to lever the hell out of this. can you withstand what will come even without a moving rates? and I think this is this is the trade-off that, that I think it's coming. And and the dips are you know the buy the dip mentality all these things work until they stop working and then my worry is that it's just mechanical. It's not There's very little you can do once the mechanical process is activated of this uh, liquidation. It's, it's it's nothing you can do. You, you you've run hedge funds. You know how it works. And and this is the reason which I think the Federal Reserve is now more aware of the problem. And in my humble opinion, what we're seeing now with 30 year Treasury yields at 208, and uh, and, and they are kind of watching the market, knowing, okay, this looks okay for now. (laughs) They're like just monitoring things a little bit. There's a perception in the market that the 30 year might be alive. Um, and, And I think they're just monitoring it. But let's not forget, you know the the, the equity uh, equities have duration. In fact, the, the longest duration ever, and which we reckon is over 30 years. So your your collapsing in in 30-year treasuries uh, will come with, uh, with 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 pressure on the equities, which today the market's completely ignoring. But as these things happen, my next step, I think, in this chess game is we have a big shock. I don't know when. I don't have a crystal ball yet, uh, but I think the Fed has YCC, yield curve control, in in the door. I think you're going to see mommy and daddy effectively stepping back in, providing some support, bringing long-term yields lower. And basically, I think this is, in my view, part of the change in the rules of the game where you will see zero interest rates and inflation. And as you change the rules of the game, this is going to lead to what you described, is everybody printing and effectively all the currencies. Going uh, down or up together, and 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 that is obviously very favorable to to, to real assets and and other considerations. But that, that's how I see this playing out. So be careful with leverage, and be careful with with hidden leverage, because th- there's a risk that I I've emphasized many times. But it's the idea of false diversification. Okay, and and we, you can apply it. I think the in this in this model that I described earlier, where interest rates are now artificially low, where there's no such thing as risk-free interest, where that's impacted both fixed income and, uh, and equities, the entire 60-40 balance portfolio that we discussed last time is, is dead. There's no diversification. Once upon a time, you have your equity, you have your bond at 5%. And if you had a crisis and equities sold off, Your bond would come to the rescue. It could it could make 50% in capital gains, you know. But right now I think that game has has changed. And this risk of false diversification means that, you know, what it means is you think you're diversified because you have a portfolio with a bunch of things, right? But at the same uh, effectively they're the same trade. And this is why I think the anti-bubbles and and understanding those uh, misconceptions and building portfolios with with not only strikers but with defenders and goalkeepers is, is so relevant. And in my opinion, how you fight this, you can't really. Um, uh, we don't have a crystal ball, so you, you need to to embrace rather than fight this volatility. And I think yeah. you need to em- embrace that. In my opinion,
0: you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipson Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's libsyn dot com.
1: I, mean, I think, you know, looking at the current market structure, I've not seen anything like this, I don't think, before in my life. Um, what I'm seeing is that everybody is record long. Retail, retail speculation, option market makers, a record long, um, um, a a record short gamma. We're seeing um, mutual funds, record low cash balances. We're seeing people record short treasuries. We're seeing people record short the dollar. It feels that in talking about VAR, any small thing can set this off. And it's a setup that. You know, um, I've been looking at. It feels a lot like nineteen eighty seven, which was a non economically driven massive event, and it feels like we're building up to an event maybe bigger than the two previous kind of mini shocks, the two thousand and eighteen, because of the one sided nature. Because everybody now believes, as you put it, mummy and daddy have given them the green light to take as much risk as possible without realizing they're creating their own dynamic of a risk unwind. And I guess that's what you're looking at, right? Absolutely, And I think there's one I would add
2: something to your point, which is vol vol. This is an absolutely critical red flag. I mean, in in, in the this last mini move that we had uh, with Robin Hood and whatever we had, uh, you know if you think about the sensitivity of price moves in equities versus vol, I mean, once upon a time, for the VIX to move considerably, you really have to have a big move in the s and p, right? We're talking about a five percent move or ten percent. Uh, the sensitivity of the of the system and how fast the vix is moving partially because of the you know the 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 carry uh, or how difficult it is to be short how consensus the long is it's actually extraordinarily difficult right now, but I would argue that this moves and this vol of vol for me is a very big uh, uh, uh red flag and it 's something that if you if you look at what 's happening there i think it's Potentially driving this, this um, you know, the, the catalyst for for some of these moves, which which are mechanical. So um so far the process is is, is being reinforced by I told you so, uh I, I am stupid, I stopped out, I should have bought the dip. And uh and it's getting to points where you know, from every point of view that you look at it, and and any justification, I mean, we just keep changing the the metrics, right? But there's no question that uh, assets are incredibly expensive in absolute terms. It's, nobody can deny that. The, um, you know, we're doing a lot of analysis on this, but obviously on a, on a risk uh, equity risk premium, which is, yeah, it's, it's super expensive, but relative to the alternative is, is cheap. That's certainly not longer true. Uh, plus, there are lots of effectively basic mistakes that you do in the analysis, like not, con- not taking into consideration that equity duration is now thirty years, so you're comparing apples and pears. You're comparing, you know, uh, curves and and points and, and and so when you actually run this analysis in a proper basis, there's there's no equity risk premium. Everything's ex- expensive in absolute, in relative, in positioning, in one-sided. And I think the the um, we're we're waiting for again, if and when this thing can be tested, which I think it will, and then. To what extent mommy and daddy will be able to contain it, and whether what they do needs to be in, in even bigger size, even more decisive, and how I think this process accelerates. And then, you know, the whole fallacy of, of, of inflation is, is not worthy because, you know, it's, it's kind of insulting almost that we've been told <laughs> that there's, there's no inflation. I think the idea that, they, that they're pretending that, you know, CPI is this one number is inflation. Your inflation is different from mine and from any other of the, of the of people on, on the call. And I think this, this entire thing, this construct, this bluff is, is to be tested. And, uh, but for the time being, it's, it's really one side street. And if you try to get on the way, it's brutal. Um, I think Jim, Jim Rogers said very wisely, manias uh, destroy those against them on the way up and those for them on the way down. And it's, it's, it's in that sort of dynamic that you, you, you know, it's, it's hard to,
1: to, to play. So, gold, like gold, is a core part of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Gold now looks like, and much like you've been saying for a long time, a replacement for bonds in a balanced portfolio of some sort. And they actually trade like bonds. You know, I put the chart on Twitter today. They trade pretty well correlated nominal bond yields and gold, Um, but obviously, gold has more probable upside. Uh, you know it's got the longest term trend in its favor, et cetera. Why is gold so damn frustrating over the last six months? I mean, it kind of it hasn't fallen off a cliff and it's not gone up, and it's just grinding everybody out of the position.
2: I think the market is is giving some uh, mixed messages. I think on the one hand, um, the I agree with you, the performance has been uh, frustrating. We could argue that the run-up to the all-time highs in August uh, perhaps carried a lot of people along. That we, we, we've been cleaning that for, for a while. Um, what's happening, I think, is the market is in this dynamic where you have uh, what I would call healthy inflation or unhealthy inflation, and, and, and the idea that this is a, a real rebound. and, and um, This is 100% artificial. Of course, you know we have the the vaccine. We have lots of hope. We think, and I, I certainly hope things will will uh, will normalize. But it's almost like something's going to give. If you want to keep equities up here, uh, and inflation's coming up, and you know something's going to have to to give. And and it does seem to me like gold is really uh, out of whack. it's out of whack versus. Uh, you know many of the arguments i mean whether it is uh, inflation, real yields, whether it is um uh, bitcoin okay <laughs> i mean the, the whole narrative of, of bitcoin is theoretically supportive of its sister or cousin gold, yet you've seen this so there I, I'm not gonna deny I think there's probably some factor. I put a a Twitter the other day saying. Bitcoin is the is the money of the future, and gold is useless um, old money. And and there's a good one third of the people who think that it's 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 shocking, um, in my opinion, uh, that when this is really you know that you were comparing bonds to to gold. There's a very fundamental difference that as we look into the next years, uh, next decade. I always talk about. You're familiar with my, my portfolio construction analogies, and I use the, the, the football or the soccer team. And, and, and what I mean by that is when you build a portfolio, it has to work as a team. It's not just 11 random guys in, in, in school. The strikers have a job, the goalkeepers have a job, the midfielders uh, have a job. And in addition to building your portfolio in this balanced way, because the, the risk of false diversification means you're basically playing with 11 strikers. You you don't realize it, but there's only strikers. And that's why when things go wrong, everything's the same trade. But there's one additional dimension here. Okay, So it's not just about building your your team with strikers, defenders, and and goalkeepers. You also need to take into consideration whether you're long or short inflation. And, And I think when you look at your strikers, this clearly favors equities to credit. When you think about your midfielders, it favors real assets versus cash. And when you look at your goalkeepers, it clearly favors gold versus fixed income. So, to your point on the relationship, I think it's fair. But in a world where I believe inflation is the end game, or unfortunately stagflation is the end game, I think that divergence between gold and fixed income is an absolute no-brainer. Precisely because of its its the, what we discussed on the currencies and how it's going to play out. So, for the in the short run, I would argue that gold is definitely behaving as an anti-bubble. Uh
1: and I think these are opportunities to accumulate. And bonds have been used as an anti-bubble historically. So I can understand why in this this kind of world the two are correlated. As you say, if the bond dynamic changes, it should be very positive for gold. I mean there's there's probably even a good, nice pairs trade. The problem is that the problem is exactly absolutely, yes.
2: I think the, the issue with, with fixed income is the the asymmetry, right? uh, uh You've already squeezed all the orange, all the juice, in things like, or at least most of it in in nominal terms from things like the boom. Okay, the idea, the ludicrous idea that you could see uh, nominal yields going to minus two or minus three, it's kind of ridiculous because, you know, at 0%, we mentioned earlier, I I can borrow a trillion dollars, right? But at minus one, (laughs) how much can I borrow? you don't need to go to minus two or minus three, you know. At minus one, you fill the bucket entirely. So I think in that sense, I I always use the analogy, half-joking of of the Boon being Franz Beckenbauer, right? This legendary uh, defender from Germany who was amazing. Uh, The the guy is now 75 years old, right? So the ability for the Boon to defend through through basically nominal yields, it's it's non-existent, right? It's, it's it's very limited, and you could argue on the other hand that the treasury actually has nice room. So in this dynamic, I think gold and treasuries and duration make a lot of sense, based on the view that this is very artificial on the asset side and that we will be tested. So I think treasuries will definitely behave strongly, and if you think about that, not only nominal terms but also with inflation. I think tips have phenomenal upside because you you have the entire pickup on the nominal plus, even if the c p i or break events i mean I, I think that's they are assets that are part of our team it hasn't been easy the last the last few months, but i I, I don't believe this what the macro is telling us, and I think the mixed messages are, are hurting uh, some of these assets and uh you know we talked about positioning and trends and fads, Time will tell. But in my opinion, I believe strongly in gold, and I think that treasuries also have a, a, a role to play.
1: Um, talk to me about inflation, because you talked about different measures of inflation. How I'm thinking of this, I mean, I, I've spent a long time writing about this and thinking about it. And what I see is CPI is CPI, whatever, it's a basket of goods. I look at wages in real terms have basically not gone up. Over the last 50 years, because of demographics of two massive cohorts of people the baby boomers, the millennials. We had globalization, we had leaving the gold standard and fiat money, and we've had technology, right? These massive waves. Yeah. And people have been screwed. So their wages haven't gone up. Price of assets has gone up. So you can buy less and less assets with your money. When I think of inflation, I see that. So it's like wage deflation as opposed to inflation per se, because your your ability to invest becomes less and less and less over time. I also think that inflation is more about the devaluation of fiat currency purchasing power, as opposed to, again, the, the 1970s demand pull inflation brought by a massive cohort of people. So I think it's a very different inflation. And people don't really understand it, because it's very hidden, because it's not in the numbers. Because we're looking at those CPI numbers are the numbers from the seventies. They're not applying to what's going on right now. What do you think?
2: I, I agree with you. I I, I basically summarise it. You know, the inflation deflation debate is is fascinating, right? And you, you see people arguing. I mean, it's undeniable that there are very strong deflationary forces in the system. Okay, we have unemployment. We have weak economic activity. You mentioned the technology. We have demographics. We have overcapacity, we have malinvestment, and eventually bubbles, right? So, all these things are deflationary. What we're missing and what you're describing is this one single force on the other side called money printing, which totally offsets and wipes out all the deflationary forces. It's almost like we're giving central banks the freebie of (laughs) deflation so they can print even more. But the net result, what well, it, it looks like, stability—it's not. And that amount of money that is being printed, it's there, and it's effectively leading to what you say—that hidden inflation, which is uh, in asset prices, is inequality. I use, and I'm talking about the bluff earlier. I, I like to use an analogy, uh, uh, which is the, the, the frogs in the boiling water, and and it's well known. Uh, that if, if you throw a, a frog in boiling water, apparently it jumps out. But if you put it in in, uh, I hope uh, you tried this experiment. I didn't. I didn't. Not even in my, at my young age. No. <laughs> but if if you put it in mild water and then you basically warm it up, it will it will boil. And I think we're all frogs in the monetary water. And this is the reason why two percent is not a random number. Why why did they target two percent? Two percent. It's low enough that as frogs stay in the water, but it's high enough. In addition to the point you made on CPI being a non-reflection of necessarily the, the reality, but it's high enough that over ten years, the two percent compounded is twenty something percent. Over twenty years, is is not far from fifty percent that has been stolen from us, right? By by, by just uh, so in that sense. Obviously, when inflation accelerates, the pace of wealth destruction is, is brutal. And this is why 100%, I, I, I agree, this inflation is, is, is different. It's, it's of, of the bad kind. And, uh, and yeah, I think this this is a, a process that we, we, we are seeing. And the question is, at what point it becomes so obvious? I mean, going back to Bitcoin, more as a, as a symptom of, of, of the issue of people being fed up, right? Of, of this um, and and how it, it, it impacts in other dimensions, but I think this uh, it has it has very deep implications for the dollar. It has deep implications for for
1: the system, and it's just a form of tax. Okay, uh, unless you're a debtor, because then it's a form of credit, right? I mean, it's a yes. if you're a debtor. So I mean, l- l- look at this. I mean, we're going to see a millennial generation. They're going to write off student loans, right? It's a debt jubilee. So. As a debtor, you benefit. Of course. As a mortgage owner, your house price has gone up, your real value of your debt's gone down. And we're, we're a debtor nation or set of nations. So it's only the savers who are getting punished here. Of course. And investors, it's really hard to be an investor because if you're young, everything's too expensive. It's a really complex world. It's not the world that we knew from the past. This is really different.
2: No, I agree with that. I think this is what I, financial bullying. Uh, it's very simple. It's we by bringing interest rates to artificially low levels, we've been pinched. I mean, here you know, my mom, your your, your auntie, my friend, you know, all of us. You have money money in the bank at, at zero or negative interest rates, and this is just financial bullying. Is you're being told? I mean, this is just in nominal terms. Let alone real returns and inflation, which ninety nine percent of the people don't 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 see it. And I think this this financial bullying is is, is behind many of these things. This monetary uh, policies without limits, and and wait for digital currencies to come, <laughs> like government currencies, because as as you will know, um, the only limit to to uh, deeper negative interest rates is is cash, is, is physical money, right? If if I and and I mentioned this in my, in my note the other day, but the the, the primary reason why they got rid of the 100 euro note, the excuse was, oh, this is used by uh, money launderers and terrorists. The reality is, how can I put minus 1% if you can take your savings and put them in notes at zero? (laughs) And it's obviously a lot harder to do with smaller denomination notes than big denomination notes. It's a matter of time that uh, I know this sounded like science fiction when I wrote the the book in 2016-17, but it, I mean, this this is it's, it's, it's happening now. Covid obviously has accelerated. You go to a supermarket and please don't pay with cash. The process is coming. There are massive pros. I'm a big fan uh, of, of of the advantages. But let's not fool ourselves. We are now uh, approaching a process where you, they can actually impose these negative interest rates, which is just just another and tax. This is, it's another tax.
1: Also. You know, if the game is to generate inflation, which is the only way out of the debt, then control the big control the inflation because right. the, 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 exactly. Right. That's but the big issue that they've got is velocity of money. Now, when you give the central bank the ability to directly give money out in electronic currency format, you get around the banks, so you can actually generate. You can actually sidestep some of the velocity of money argument. So that is the ability to, to increase inflation somewhat. So I get why they're doing it. It's pretty shit for anybody who's a saver.
2: Yeah, I think you're pointing out that they, they be careful what you wish for, is, it would be my, my point. And I think that the central bank, they know the exit is to deflate or inflate the way out of the debt. And if they could do it at a fast enough pace that doesn't really create a collapse, it would be ideal. But unfortunately, it's super difficult to control. You're, you're talking about velocity. We're talking about other things which are even bigger problems, which is asset bubbles, and 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 this is the thing that is extraordinarily difficult to fine tune. And I think the Fed is, you know. It's been a little bit, a bit like Drucker Miller would argue. You know, you, you sneak a, a, a wreck hike, you know, it, the way he talks about it. You, you sneakily put one here and there. You you. you he's right. I mean, if you just have this game where we believe that they're in full control and they can send equities to whatever they want, and this is not, they're always going to be there. I think that the size of the is bigger, the, the the tools they have to control it are smaller, and this ultimately leads to to, to bigger responses. So. I think this acceleration is not happening through the through the real world. It's happening in in channels that are different and that are extraordinarily dangerous. Are we closer to Japan? Are we gonna? Are we really, you know, becoming Japan or are we becoming Argentina? And and probably both. And, and that's the scary thing. The world arguably is becoming very polarized. It's very polarized uh, in, in you know politically. It's, it's polarized in terms of market outlook. It's the deflation versus inflation. It's, it's all polarizing. And there's one thing for sure that we know when things are polarized, volatility. <laughs> okay, Because one day, I'm right, next day, you're right. And, and volatility is not neutral for risk, volatility is bad for risk. And so this polarization of the markets, I think will invariably lead to these vault spikes. And this is why this is going to become so difficult to navigate. And uh, and yeah, it's it's, it's certainly not a, a one-way street. But I think the, the the big bluff from from the central banks with respect to wanting inflation, it's uh, it's it's a be careful what you wish for. And any people from Latin America who are uh, listening to this know perfectly well that these policies don't fix problems; they actually enlarge them. And and I think we are about to you know it's it's hard to see. Based on where we are, but but I think the uh, you
1: know it's it's going to be a a wide run. Right, I've got a ton of questions because you're always super popular in Real Vision, so I'm going to yeah. ask you. Uh, let's let's try and ask as many questions. Oh my God, I'm literally hundreds. Um, okay, from Peter, what are your favorite option strategies, trades long and short in today's environment for a retail investor? Yeah, what should retail guys do here? People who can't get access to your funds and they're trying to think this through themselves. Um, what should they do? Well, when
2: you're a retail guy, you should stick to listed. So um, you know, vanilla listed. Um, I uh, right now, and and this is when you think about options. There are two ways to trade options. Two ways. There are two fundamental schools of trading options. What I would call the Black and Scholes boys and girls, and Monte Carlo boys and girls. How how do Black and Scholes people think? They think about the option as effectively the premium you pay is the um, the break even between the time value versus what you earn from delta hedging. I know this is very technical, but basically. What it means is you are trading the implied versus realized volatility. It's a volatility game, delta hedged, blah, blah, blah. This is the way 99% of the, the, the street maybe trades it because it's market makers, it's everybody. But there's another way to think about options. okay? And the other way to think about options is from Monte Carlo. And Monte Carlo, basically, it, it brings the name from the casino. <laughs> you run 100,000 iterations, and he it says, oh, there's The expected value of this option is X. And I think, first of all, I would very strongly recommend that you play options from the long side. You pay the premium, you can sleep at night, the absolute worst thing that could happen is you lost your premium. If you are tempted to sell options, whether it is Bitcoin is going to 100k, I sell 30k puts, you will 100% blow up eventually. Okay, so selling options is extraordinarily dangerous, even if it might look very appealing. So unless you're a professional guy and have a very disciplined, I would suggest that retail guys stick to buying options. Obviously, there's a fair price, and I think right now, if I had to put one trade, uh, I, I like uh, calls on the VIX are expensive, uh, both outright and the skew, but. It is going to be the best defender out there uh, when when things go. If you want to mitigate a little bit the, uh, the the negative carry, I mean, we're I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but anyway, we're looking at some of these structures as we speak. But certainly, if you think about forty dollars calls being forty, the level where it really goes, uh, for example, for April, there'll be two dollars forty or so, or two dollars twenty. Uh, the the, the volatility so high that you could turn it into a cold spread 40, 60, or about $1.20. So th- these are basically 16, 17 to 1. Now, theoretically, you could do it over the next 16 months, <laughs> and, and you need to pay once. Of course, it's very painful if you've done it for two or three or four months consecutively and you've lost your 1.2. Um, so the key thing is you have to stick to these strategies, right? You have to be consistent, believe in the process, and and and, and do it for a reason, right? So. Uh, I think buying options is safer, clearly, than selling them. Where are those pockets of opportunity? Buying gold calls, treasury calls, vix calls—that's the way I play this because they are defenders. But there are multiple other ways in which you could express and your the views. The
1: key thing that you do here is you do it in a systematic, you know, basis where you analyze what's going on. You're not trying to call the market. You may have a view. But your portfolio is not that. Your portfolio is kind of an all-weather idea that 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 encompasses the structure of how the world is right now, the investment landscape. And I, I think that's crucial because people think I should buy options and they go too big, they kind of misunderstand the risks. And what you actually do is it's very systematic in where you're capturing this value. And then when it pays off, the idea is you haven't spent so much premium over time. That it ends up being a net wash, you end up making profits when it happens. Is that right?
2: That's right. I think if you if you think about the relationship between the S&P and the VIX, there's something very ironic, which is the market is giving you the cheapest insurance when you need it the most. <laughs> when do you need insurance the most? With the S&P at 3,900 or 2,200? Of course. When, or prior in February, uh, we were uh, the, I think the best hedge fund in the world in you know, with the S and P at thirty-four hundred, um, you know, before that you have the VIX at eleven, right? So, of course, you want to accumulate insurance where it's cheap, which ironically happens when the valuations are highest, and then you want to monetize that, and you effectively run, as you were saying, a strategy that is looking for, you know, the market. The market doesn't pay you twenty to one for nothing. Okay, the market gives an implicit five percent probability, right? And and that's something that if you just play once, you have 95% chance of, of losing. Yeah. <laughs> so then you become tired, you become frustrated. But so as you said, and this is huge, but very important, is the sizing of the trade. So you know, you need to be ready to withstand very large uh, uh, or long periods where you might be losing. And I think ironically, as people get burned and you know, these things happen, you, you will get those payouts. But it's it's something that has to be done in a disciplined basis and and with an objective, whether it's a hedge or or you know to express a view. I'm a big fan of options. I, I love them because you can sleep at night. It's there's nothing better than that. You know your premium, you know your risk, but it's very uh, tiring emotionally to be losing and losing and losing, and 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 the temptation is you stop buying them. Just when you when you need
1: it the most. Now here's a question for again for retail people, what delta should they look at? I mean, should they be looking at 20 delta stuff, 10 delta stuff, 40? You know, how should they think about it? Again, you will have a whole different, you know, construction of different types of deltas with different types of risk, different types of time horizons. But the average guy, he's got a portfolio, he wants to run a ongoing hedge basis where he doesn't mind losing some premium every month or every quarter, what Delta should they buy?
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to Lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N dot com.
2: It's a great question. I think the first question we should ask is, which asset? And, uh, and if you think about it, let, let me give you a simple example. So let's say we have a choice between buying uh, puts on the S&P 20% out of the money. And let's say for the sake of argument, that's 1% premium for a given maturity. Or you could buy at the money calls on treasuries on 200% of the notional. For the same amount of premium. So when I was talking about uh, Monte Carlo, you actually think in premium. You don't think in vol, you don't think in anything. You think, I'm going to risk 1%. What is the way in which I will get the most protection for my money? And let's look at two scenarios here. Let's assume that equities are down 25%. Obviously, your 20% out of the money put is 5% intrinsic, plus the move in vol, you made some nice return. Okay, five to one, 10 to one, whatever. But what do you think happens to treasuries <laughs> if equities are down um, uh, 25%? Of course, yields are going to collapse, treasuries are going to fly, and you're long from at the money in 200% of the notion. Now, there's another scenario, which is mommy and daddy intervene and equities actually stay high. But they they stay high because they intervened through low interest rates which means treasuries rally so in that scenario risk adjusted it's better to buy calls at the money calls on treasuries than is to buy at the money puts yeah on, and this on, is exactly
1: this is exactly what i walked people through when i was getting nervous over the robin hood period i said listen if vol breaks 40 for the same reasons you did bars going to explode and i said actually the best bet is buy calls on treasuries because the market is very skewed in your favor, um, and and it's cheap. It's much cheaper. So is, yeah, I think this that's is what interesting. Happens. Yeah, it's very interesting because the
2: market is is giving you. Sometimes we talked before about gold and how you know the Bitcoin market is telling you a story. The real yields another. The gold market another. And and when you put everything together, they don't quite add up, right? They, of course, you could make it add up through positioning, but certainly there's some inconsistencies. So I would say that in this environment, looking longer term, we know the anti-bubbles will perform. You know that the bubbles are too big to fail. They will be tested, but it will only lead to more accommodation, which is why if you put a gun in my head, I'll say buy the coal on the anti-bubble, which is cheaper. You're buying at a steeper discount. So whether it's calls on gold or calls on treasuries or the ultimate defender being the calls on the VIX. The, the thing we need to consider is the basis risk. Okay, So if you're hedging a long S&P portfolio, of course, you want to buy puts on the S&P because that, that, that will give you 100% coverage. If for whatever reason, you bought uh, puts on something else or calls on something else, there could be scenarios, and we saw it in March with Ray Dalio and, and risk parity blowing up, where your, your hedge doesn't work okay think about gold okay if someone says gold will cover me in a crisis at first instance probably not because gold may collapse but you know that as things collapse and mommy and daddy come with more accommodation eventually gold explodes but right. in the short run it didn't hit you so every time you take basis risk and your hedge you're adding risk so it might be you know i, I think treasury is, is on the on the safer side. So if I said if you ask me, Diego, what's going to be the most explosive, you know, twenty to one hedge, fix? What's going to be the second most effective, where I have less risk, more chance of treasuries, longer term gold? But you can't just you know generalize and say this is the way it works because obviously volatility is all over the place, skews all over the place, liquidity basis, and so we need to adjust the game. But I think, setter is If you always being equal, you should always favor the uh, the hedge on whatever asset you own, because that will reduce the basis risk. Every time you deviate from that, I want to hedge my gold with silver, the so-called Mexican hedge. Boom!
1: <laughs> because it, yeah, this happens all I've the this, time. You and I have seen this a hundred times in our career. Everyone thinks they're really cute. I'm going to hedge my copper exposure by buying dollar-yen or whatever stupid idea they come up with. And then guess what? Both sides of the trade blow up. And exactly. then they've got double the hole they were in. I mean, you, we've both seen it a million times before. Brent WTI, I mean, it's there are insane
2: cases of, of lack of risk management or where the models just blow up. Of course, they're the same thing until they're not. and And, and these moves are so consensus and so large that once they reach, I mean, we, we saw recently, you know, the basis in comics, right, in gold. And you see things happening that you only can explain later. Someone was running basis risk that they didn't even know it existed. They're like, of course, comics and, and physical is the same. Yeah. Until someone has been hedging millions and millions of ounces and then suddenly goes, stops, triggered, and it goes completely crazy. So these things... Again, that that basis risk is is some relevant thing to consider. So I would say, you know, be mindful of, of that basis risk and the relative value. And in my case, you know, there's also another uh, element which is what I would call the domino effect. So what's going to go first? Okay, I have a non-consensus view on China. Okay, I think uh, China right now is viewed as the big winner. The ten-year uh, Chinese government bond paying three percent, with the currency appreciating, is like free money. Is the new treasury? And I think this will only lead when volatility explodes. The yuan is now a carry trade, so I think we'll see some pressure plus geopolitical stuff. So I think Taiwan or these things I, 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 I like as, as hedges, and they might be um, uh, uh, very contrarian. But but there's lots of uh, uh, things that could go wrong. What's going to blow things up? Can you imagine what would happen to equity markets if there's a strike in Taiwan, or who knows, whatever thing could happen, right? And 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 so that's where the basis comes. But also, if you are a goalkeeper, you know you need to try to cover as much of the goal as possible, and 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 do it in a way that, as as things happen and the pieces of the domino start to fall, you can also take profits on those pieces and rebalance the portfolio back because you have in in the example before. You know, you can take profits on your treasuries or your equity because then your loan calls on gold. So you don't, want, you don't want to fall in the trap of false diversification, which is everything's the same. <laughs> you want to do things that behave differently. They happen under different triggers. But the key thing is, if you use this for protected purposes, make sure or try to minimize the basis risk and do it buying options. I think that would be my, my basic recommendation.
1: Right, there's a um, there's a whole bunch of questions. We're already we're already at an hour, and there's a bunch of questions. Right, there's a bunch of questions about obviously Bitcoin. Uh, where where's your view about this, and where this fits into any of these ideas?
2: I have a I, I just put out a, a note on LinkedIn the other day, and this is um, it's going to be I don't know how long this meeting can go, but <laughs> but basically my my I, I think. I think there's a number of big considerations with with Bitcoin. Uh, my 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 view is the article is called Bitcoin Bubble or Anti Bubble, and and I and I've tried to be as unbiased as possible. And I run through a lot of the, the drivers, and uh, I highlight a number of what I would call threats, a number of fallacies, and a number of, of, of considerations and limitations. But to, to to run through a few of them briefly. Um, the first point I would make is that uh, there's a concept called seniorage, which, which central banks uh, basically is a privilege that central banks have, which is the difference between how much it costs you to print a 500 euro note, call it one cent, and what it buys you, which is 500 euros. And that privilege of fiat, right, is something that they will never, ever uh, uh, give up, right? And and so the entire there are multiple ways in which they can uh, respond to, to 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 the threat of losing that, and and it it, it could go all the way to making it illegal tender. It could be done because of the excuse, just like they did with the notes for uh, terrorism or whatever. But ultimately, the, there is a real threat that there's going to be some some response, even. Be careful with things like Tesla buying this. I mean, there's an environmental angle whereby ESG in Europe is becoming huge. You could argue that um, you know buying uh, Bitcoin is is non-ESG. That's very clear. It's black and white. And so the institutional adoption of, of ESG is is very questionable. And and who knows? Imagine, and I'm just thinking loud. Tesla was taken out their green status because they they, they bought that. That that that's that's a cataclysmic event, both for Bitcoin and, and this. But let's 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 put this category into the central bank category. You are the first one, and I know that never fight the Fed. This is fighting the Fed. The the second thing, and this is more controversial, is uh, is what I would call some some fallacies. And and, and one of the and we, we will strongly disagree that we disagree. I can I, is is one of them for me is this idea that there's a scarcity fallacy. So there's the scarcity, and, and the idea that there's only 21 million bitcoins misses the point that there's 21 million different cryptos. So this point that I'm trying to make is that of course we're framing the the limited uh, supply
0: of, of bitcoin, but then we have Ethereum and Dogecoin and who knows, uh, you name it,
2: coin, right? And and that process of it's it's closely linked to to the um, uh, inflation hedge story and the store of value, I, I, uh, I have my, my reservations in terms of, of, of that, and, and my very good friend, Daniel Lacalle, uh, who we, we, we co-wrote the energy book together, uh, questioned this openly. And, uh, and he said, Diego, you're, you seem to be implying that, that Bitcoin and Ethereum are uh, kind of the same thing. It would be like, I think this is crazy. It's like comparing uh, gold and silver. And 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 my, my response to him is like of course gold and silver are different and maybe Bitcoin and Ethereum, but our biggest argument in the energy book was nobody needs crude oil, per se. We need clean, reliable, abundant, cheap energy. So if we can actually do this in a better way, we will switch. <laughs> and I just bought my first electric car. You know, my wife and I'm trying to take it as much as I can, but. This is what it is. And so when we think about the problem, framing the problem of, of fiat currencies, and obviously crypto and, 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 and blockchain are game changer technologies, but there are there are these threats, and then I think there's some considerations. And and that goes on into, into the value creation, what I believe is a value creation fallacy or or um, or even the monopoly fallacy that can only be one. And I think this is a you're a big fan of both Bitcoin and
1: Ethereum. And I think this is almost like yeah just a big of the whole space and i think part of what you're getting across here is and i think this is very important is this is not risk free it's not risk free it's not a risk free asset it is a risk asset that has potential within this framework that we're talking about the world but it's untested in its future case it's it depends which discussion we take. Whether it's a reserve asset or it's money. If it's money, you got no chance because, as you said, a reserve asset they'll allow it because they allow gold. So it, it, there's a multi-path outcomes, all of which are risky, and there is and there will be speculative mania around it. <laughs> Because it's the it's the nature of something that has adoption effects as part yeah, of it.
2: You have you have taxation, you have regulation. I think look, people like you, people like Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, people I admire enormously. Um, you know, Paul Tudor Jones he called it in his newsletter brilliantly uh, the fastest horse in the inflation race, and he's he's who he is for a reason, right? And he identified the same things like that that you did. We have a huge problem. And 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 I think in this race, obviously Bitcoin is running a lot faster than than gold. Which uh, at the time uh, this this came out, and but I think you know the entire narrative of there can only be one. It's right. so central, but it's so central to the success, in my view, because the minute you admit there's more than one, then the scarcity goes. And I think Mrs. No, you know, in, my, in my in my humble opinion, yeah, but I think.
1: They play different different roles. I think uh, Daniel was explaining that as well. They're just not the same thing. It's like comparing Apple and Tesla, as opposed to silver and gold, to Apple and Tesla. It's like comparing two different equities and saying, well, they're both equities. They aren't. But I get your point, is there are plenty of new assets being created that can have similar Similar no. kinds of attractiveness as Bitcoin, but they haven't been adopted yet. Bitcoin's adoption is its key element. Yeah, but think, you, go on.
2: Now, one of the things I loved about putting the article in Bitcoin in in, in LinkedIn is that I got so many comments, which actually <laughs> tells make, you. Make, I love it. I, no, I, no, but meaning that there are lots of arguments. You know, some, some guy said, "Diego, I hundred percent agree." And you didn't even touch on Tether, <laughs> like, which is my, you know, OK, fine. But then the other guys came in and, and gave me fantastic arguments, which I, I've, I've, they've given me the opportunity to, to, to think through, like network effects and whatever, and, and Netcal's Law, which I know you're a big fan. And this is truly fascinating. I think I'm, I'm coming from, from a different uh, perspective, but I also see you know, some, some jumps in, 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 in logic, in this dynamic. It's all, it's all very interlinked. But of course, we're we're looking at utility and exponential growth of utility and how it translates to to prices. We know technology is not a uh, an asymptotic process; it's S curves. But I think uh, ultimately, my, my my conclusion, just to 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 put an end to this, um, or we can continue as much as you like. But but I think that our it, it's I I would personally argue that is is in the bubble anti bubble debate is eighty percent bubble twenty anti bubble but it's a um, know it's a strong statement and I, uh, but but there are multiple reasons that and risks and considerations across the government intervention manipulation regulation taxation uh, as well as certain beliefs and misconceptions related to this narrative of currency versus store of value can only be one and and more technical issues like like implementation which yeah, I mean, the b i s but makes, it's it's
1: and a, it's, that makes total sense because. Gold doesn't have any of those, so it has less of a risk premium versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin has the risk as a premium, so it kind of it makes sense. And you know, as you said, you know, with gold, it's a known quantity. You know what it is. You know what it looks like. You know what it does. You know how it fits into a portfolio. You know, I think I think that's you know it's dead right. I mean, your how you construct it is you know is your own assessment of the risk. I think it's exactly the right thing to do.
2: Because everything, if you talk about the inflation argument, ultimately, as, as the currency, as you pointed out earlier, as as the value of, of uh, the currency converges to zero, everything is an inflation hedge. This is an inflation hedge, <laughs> of course. Everything is an inflation hedge, like in Venezuela, right? So it's going to be an interesting ride. And I think Paul Tudor Jones and you, uh, you know, pointing on on, on on the fastest horse, it doesn't mean it's the only horse, and and it doesn't mean that there's no risks. But I think this idea of huddle and whatever, we need to remind ourselves that Paul Titor Jones and Draka Miller and these guys that come in, you know as well as I do that they're not married to anything. Okay, so uh, well, they're women, of course, they're wives. Yeah. They're, they're lovely wives, uh, but they're not. They, they buy and sell stuff, so they're traders that identify the process. And if if you, and I'm not going to compare it by any stretch, but but if you think about GameStop. You know, you have a very clear um, small bubble, but where it's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game where you know some people were short, some guys came in, and then what happened is some of the smarter guys, you know, get out, and some others are now long-term holders, right? And I think you want to be in a situation where you're sizing the bet. You're you 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 you, not, you need to have an exit strategy when. You know, you think about something being you know forever, a sailor, I will never sell a hundred years. Put your money from a treasury, from a company's treasury and don't sell it for a hundred years. It's like, dude, where's it's, it's, it's insane. But I think, look, it's a fascinating case. I, I, I have my reservations as I, as I stated, but I can see a lot of the merits and and I respect a lot uh, you know people like you and and, and the arguments. But I think as I, th- I think through them one by one, there are lots, lots of reasons to to, to be to be uh, mindful and, and and play it without leverage. Don't sell options on this. Make sure the size is is rightly done. And uh, and yeah, it's very symmetric. So uh, at these levels, is the convexity is is obviously more two two sided. But uh,
1: who knows? Final question. Um, something that's on my radar right screen as well from AJ. Uh, can you ask Diego's opinion on emerging markets over the medium long term?
2: Super important question. And um, I, I think emerging markets, once again, uh, you, you have very strong two sides of the story. I mean, one is we are printing our money, this money is going to go into commodities, into infrastructure. Uh, some of the emerging markets have been much more fiscally prudent, some of them have not. And, and my my, I suspect that we're going to see a bit of polarization across EM. You can't quite just put all of them in the, in the one basket. I would say that in a benign market environment, uh, they will all do very well. The carry is attractive. I think some of them will be more resilient than others. And uh, I I think in that sense, positioning could be relevant. I happen to have I mean, one of my biggest. Uh, i gonna call it mentor, but people that I admire uh, and I respect a lot, the way he thinks, is Ray Dalio, and and I couldn't. In in China, we, we strongly disagree, uh, which is very very healthy. I mean, we, I don't agree with 100 percent that, that he says, but but I, I think it's a very. Uh, there, there are gonna be amazing opportunities, but it's not just one trade. It's gonna have you need to do the granularity, and 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 in some ways. I think currencies, it will all go down to the currencies. It's about the total return. Um, remember Brexit, you know, how uh, as, as the pound collapsed, uh, real estate went up. It, it's really about it's about the total return. So you think about what happens to those assets. Are you going to buy the Bovespa? OK, is it in dollars? Is it in in, 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 uh, in local currencies, in real? And and I think when you think about the currency, the carry, the funding, the vol, uh, I am a um, it's a risk asset, so I am somewhat constructive over the medium long term. But let's not fool ourselves. Exit's forty, things go wrong, it's going to get decimated, and and this is the the challenge that we have. is a little bit like commodities, right? But arguably commodities, two plus two is closer to four <laughs> uh, than 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 in emerging markets where it's, 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 it's just dumped. It. The exit door is very very limited, and so. I think commodities. Obviously, it's a matter of price where you come in, but it's a fascinating asset class. I'm not going to claim I'm, I'm an expert. I, I'm not, but I, I think there are going to be great opportunities. And, uh, and there's certainly, if, if you have the right managers and the right discipline, it could be it could be a very very good, uh, good asset class. But it's also it could well be one of the pockets that could could go first as well due to carry, and and it's the first thing that you unwind in a in a blow in a volatility blow up. It's is the carry trades and. And we saw that, I think, you remember Aussie Yen in, uh, it's not even a, a, an emerging market currency, but the move with Aussie Yen uh, funded carry, it was just unreal. And, and, and then the yen reversed. It's, it, I think when volatility hits, positioning is really what drives the market. And so try to avoid a consensus place, do it safely. But uh, I think it's a fascinating asset class and, and, and looking at the real nature we, we can, and, and the economy we can't deny the demographics and the opportunity. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I think people should be in, but in, 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 a, in, a, in a cautious way, and, and perhaps with some, some help.
1: Diego, as I've ever, look, thanks for being our guide through this. It was like this world is set up for you. I mean, you wrote the book about it, and now we're living it. And so checking in with you is always an honor. I always love hearing from you. Love your perspectives. So thanks so much, my friend it's it's my pleasure thank you so much
2: and uh, i look forward to catching up soon and uh, much health to everybody in this in these very difficult times
1: yeah i just managed to get my mom out of spain i've just got her over to cayman she's in quarantine now for 2 weeks here but she was on her own for a year in Javier.
2: it's been it's been super super difficult for all our moms i think uh, and and that's uh, it's it's devastating so i Sincerely hope uh, you will come out of this soon, and uh, you know we'll have, right. a, we a, have a, a healthy, tonight. a healthy, happy glass of wine in the next uh, Real Vision uh, event, which I, I miss. So uh, big, me big, uh, big thank you to everybody, and uh, best of luck out there. Yep. thanks, yeah, Thank you, you so go. much. Bye. Take care, man.